It's a privilege. I am uh, grateful for the fellowship that we have, that we share in Christ Jesus. And I'm grateful also for the privilege that I have today to preach God's word to you. As I've been in contact a little bit with uh, Pastor Matt over the um, past couple of days and just thinking and praying about how I can, how I could best serve you as a, as a guest amongst you as a family. Um, and I, I'm convinced that the best thing I can do is, is play the role of encourager. I want to encourage you as a church. And the best way I know to encourage you is to remind you of what Jesus Christ has done for you. So I have no idea what kinds of challenges you've been facing over the course of this week or over the course of the past several weeks or months or over the course of your life. I have no idea what kinds of sins you've been struggling with, what kinds of failures you've been dealing with. But I know this, that we all face a multitude of challenges. And I also know this, that the greatest encouragement that we can experience is to know and to believe and to live in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so what I hope to do today is simply preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, remind you of Jesus Christ's birth, death, and resurrection on behalf of people like us who need rescue, who need hope, who need him. But in order to preach this gospel for you or to you, what I'd like to do is for us to go all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures, to the book of Genesis. I believe that even there, in the book of Genesis, in the beginning of God's word, we will find this message of hope in Jesus Christ. So I invite you to open up to, to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 14 down to 24. And, uh, and then we're going to walk through it. We'll start out a little earlier, actually. We'll deal with some of what happens earlier in, in chapter 3 of Genesis, but uh, we'll settle in later on in the verses that I'm about to read to you now. So Genesis 3, 14 down to 24. This is the Lord God speaking to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to the dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for Eve garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat 
and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now I said I wanted to encourage you, and this isn't the most encouraging of passages. Maybe it's discouraging. It's one of the saddest. It is actually the saddest story you could ever hear. But I hope that we'll see that in the midst of all this sadness and brokenness and judgment that we see here is a shining light of hope. What I want to do is look at three things in this passage. Um, three points are in your bulletin. The first one is paradise is poisoned. The second one is um, hope for exiles. And the, uh, the third one is a God who saves. God who saves. So, so let's jump into to Genesis here. We have here the story in Genesis of how humanity came into existence, beginning from the first pages of Scripture. It's a story of origins, but if we read it carefully, I think we'll find that it's not just a story about the origins of humanity or the origins of the universe. It's more fundamentally about God. And it's a story about God's plan to save, to rescue a people. All right, the church has always believed, the Christian church has always believed that God is creator. And here in Genesis, we see God creating. The church has also always believed that God is not only creator, God is rescuer. And here in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see that God is also not only creating, but he's also rescuing. In Genesis, God makes a world from nothing. And he calls this world good. And then he brings mankind into existence. And he places them in that garden, in that world. And he calls mankind very good. God takes the first man, the first woman. He puts them in this garden. This lush environment. That they're called to now cultivate. And to enjoy. It's a garden in which they could experience open and deep relationship with their creator. God tells us that he in fact walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. God establishes this order as well. He creates a society. Two people, but it's enough for there to be a society there. There's an order. He calls man and woman to live under his authority and to live as his representatives. To, to exercise care and, and to exercise cultivation over that garden. So what we have here at the beginning of the Bible is God's people living in God's place under God's rule. God's people living in God's place under God's rule. It is, in fact, paradise. But soon, there's tragedy. And that's why I said paradise is, in fact, poison. You see, sin comes into the world very soon after it was created and it fractures the peace. It fractures the shalom that existed there in Genesis. Genesis 3 actually documents what happened. God had placed his children in this environment, in this garden, and he had given them instructions, but he had also given them a warning. Look at, look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. 
The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there we go. Some instructions from God and a warning from God. And they're not just warnings and instructions from some superior being. These are the words of instruction and warning from a God who loves these people. Who valued them. And had given everything that they had to them. But at the outset of Genesis 3, we read that the woman, Eve, is approached by a serpent. It's such a strange scene. If you've grown up in church, maybe it seems just normal. You've heard this so many times. It's such a bizarre scene. A serpent, a talking serpent, approaches this woman. And she's convinced to eat the fruit of the only tree that God would place off limits. There were trees all over the place. There's one off limits. She's convinced to eat of it, and she shares with her husband. And at that moment, everything is ruined. Everything is ruined. The order of creation that God had established at that point was flipped. So God had said, look, this is, I'm calling you to live under my rule, under my authority. I'm the benevolent creator who has made you, and I'm calling to live under my authority, and then under your authority, I'm placing the creatures. But here it all gets flipped. The creature ends up calling the shots. The serpent, that is. And the man and the woman who were made to live under the, the benevolent, loving authority of God, instead, they listen to the new shot caller, the new boss, the serpent. And God, the creator himself, the only one worthy and wise enough to rule, he's rejected. He's placed at the bottom of the totem pole. And that's how paradise is poisoned. This is not mythology. It's our story. Jesus himself takes this story to be fact, to be historical. But, but this is more than just history. It's a, our human experience is captured here, personally. This isn't just history in the big sense. It's relevant for all of us. Perhaps you've heard the, 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 the saying, whoever, um, if, you, if you don't know history, you're bound to repeat it. You've heard that? Well, here is history that we have all repeated. We have all been deceived. We have all rejected God's rule. We have all walked in the path of Adam and of Eve. So Genesis 3 is meant to show us something about ourselves, not just where we come from, but who we are and how we live now. It's called, it's designed to show us, as we look at these two, we're meant to see something horrifying about our own sin when we look at their sin. What was their sin? What exactly did they do wrong? Did they break God's rules? Yeah, they did. They broke God's laws, no doubt. And most of us, we tend to think of sin in those terms. It's simply breaking God's rules. But I think that if we look closer, we'll see that sin here in Genesis 3 started not with an action, but it started with a belief. And for Adam and for Eve, it was the belief that God's word could not be trusted. And it was the belief that God was not really acting in love toward them. You see, it started with suspicion against God. 
that his word couldn't be trusted and that he really wasn't acting lovingly towards us. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, the second half of that verse. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? You know, sin here and sin often in our lives as well, it, it's, it's the result of rejecting or ignoring God's clear words in favor of something that we want to believe. So we don't want to believe what God is saying. We want to believe something in, instead, something else. And so we're tempted to ask that same question. Did he really say that? Is that really what God meant when he said that? So we can seek to reinterpret his word or eventually maybe even just ignore it altogether so that we can do what we want. Did God really say to flee sexual immorality, for instance? Did God really say to abstain from worldly passions like we just read in 1 Peter? Did he really mean that? Even though God has spoken clearly, we still continue to ask that question. The Bible says that God created you and he created me by the power of his word. And, and, and in Hebrews it tells us that, that God even sustains the world now by the power of his word. Yet we ignore and we reject his word. Adam and Eve did, and I believe we do as well. Or we, or we look at his word with disdain we see it as an obstacle sometimes to us getting what we think would really be great for us, what we really want, what we really need. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Notice something, she, she, she's half right here. God did, in fact, say don't eat from that tree, but she kind of adds something. She says that God said don't touch it either, which we have no record of God saying, um, which, is, which is an odd thing because on the one hand, we do tend at times to reject or ignore God's words, but other times, it's weird, we, we have this, this tendency sometimes to add to God's word. It's like we put rules where they aren't. We add laws where they don't really exist, which... Eve seems to be doing here. It's odd. Sin begins with, often begins with this tendency to, 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 to disbelieve and to reject God's word. But it's not just that. That's not the only thing that Adam and Eve did here. They threw off God's authority. They threw off God's lead. They rejected him as father and as king. I think this points to something that's true in our lives. Every sin is, in fact, an act of autonomy. It begins with distrusting God. It's, it's, it begins with that suspicion that God really isn't out for our good. It's, it begins with accepting that lie, that God doesn't really want what's best for you. In fact, obeying God will mean missing out on what's best for me. He's restricting my joy. That's the lie we often believe then leads to us just throwing off his authority altogether. I will call shots in this particular instance. God won't. So whether it's a relationship or any kind of decision, I will make it myself. I don't need God to tell me what to do. After all, 
He keeps the best from me. He can't be trusted. What we see here in, in Genesis 3 is not only Adam and Eve disbelieving and rejecting God's word and throwing off his authority, but we also see them doing something that may be familiar to us too. They start to value what God gives them more than they value God himself. And it's true for many of us. Sin is often for us. It's valuing what God has given us and the things we see around us more than we value God himself. Eve and Adam look at the fruit. And that fruit, amazingly, in that moment, becomes more valuable to them than the relationship that they have with the God who made them and gave them everything. And that works its well out sometimes in our lives as well. Think, for example, some of the great things we have, like food, for instance. I don't know if you like food. I love food. It's meant to be enjoyable. God could have just made us differently, I suppose. But he, he, could, he could have made us to just, you know, get recharged or with, 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 with tasteless, flavorless fuel. Instead, he gives us food. And he gives us places to eat. You guys are so lucky to live in Queens. You have so many places that you can eat wonderful food from all over the world. But food is meant not only to be enjoyable, but it's meant... It's designed to lead us to more joy when we recognize that there's actually a God who gave us all this. So that when we say, man, this, this steak is awesome, it's delicious. How awesome must be the God who just made this for me and gave it to me along with everything else he's given me. And the same is true of sex, it's true of relationship, it's true of all of our possessions, our career success, all of it. If this is great, how great must be the God who gave it to me? But we short-circuit that when we try to find all our full satisfaction, we try to find happiness in the thing that God's given us, apart from the God who gave it to us. Joy, satisfaction, ends up getting stunted. It ends up leading to guilt and emptiness and disappointment when we start, in one sense, worshiping the thing rather than the God who gave us that thing. C.S. Lewis, famous author, he says that in this moment, when Eve takes that fruit and eats it, he says she stopped worshiping God and she started worshiping a fruit which seems ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And yet it's a picture of what we do. What we it's what Romans 1.25 tells us. It's exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. We take good things and we ruin them. By making them more valuable to ourselves than God himself. I was listening, maybe some of you heard this, uh, about a year ago or so, I heard um, a speech given by Michael Jordan, greatest basketball player of all time. He was getting inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. And he gave a speech. A lot of guys, when they're in that position, will give a speech filled with, like, thanksgiving and, like, you know, humility. It might be fake humility or real humility, who knows, but it's like, you know, you're supposed to give kind of a humble speech. Thank all the people in your life who helped you to achieve this thing. That's kind of the protocol. Michael Jordan's an exceptional human being. 
He didn't do what everyone else does. Instead, he did a lot of boasting, for one thing, but he did something else that was really, really interesting. He gave us a window, not only into his mind and his heart, but I think it gives us a window into our heart. Listen to what Michael Jordan said about basketball. He said, the game of basketball has been everything to me. It's been my refuge, the place I always went when I needed comfort and peace. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't help listening to that and sounding like he's talking about a God. Doesn't it sound like it? Like, as Christians, if you're a Christian, don't you use the word refuge and peace and comfort? We sing about it. We read about the scriptures. We're talking about Jesus, right, when we say those things. He's articulating something that maybe some of us wouldn't articulate. We don't say this relationship or this job or this money is my refuge. It's where I find my peace and comfort. We reserve those words for God. Most of us do it for Christians. But deep down, what we're not articulating sometimes, what's true of us perhaps, is that we are really finding refuge. We really are trying to find peace, trying to find comfort, trying to find hope and things rather than the God who gives us those things. You see, the problem for Adam and Eve wasn't simply that they were disobedient or naughty. They distrusted God and ultimately dismissed him. They dismissed his words and his authority. And they took this thing, this desire. They took that promise that, that the serpent made to them. And they staked more on that, put more value on that. And they loved that more than the creator who had made them. Friends, this is, this is us when we sin, whether we see it or not. And it's interesting to see how Adam and Eve respond to their sin after they fall. It's fascinating. Look at, look at verse 7 of Genesis chapter 3. Again, I think that this gives us some insight into how we think sometimes. Genesis 3, verse 7. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, that as God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And it's interesting, Adam's response immediately following the sin is to run away from God and, and hide from God. Instead of running to God and saying, Father, look, look what I've done. Look at the mess I've made. What am I going to do? Can you fix this? Instead, he hides behind bushes that God made. And he covers himself with these leaves that God had made. These are the furry first moments of what was meant to be life and freedom. Remember, the, the promise, I mean, when he took the fruit, it was supposed to lead to like enlightenment, freedom, joy. These are the very first moments of Adam's new found life of freedom. What does it look like? 
It looks like him trying to grab anything he can to cover up his shame, hiding from the God who loves him. It's the opposite of freedom. It became enslavement. It became condemnation. Look, this is a summary of human existence after the fall. We have become hiders. We hide from each other. We hide from friends. We hide because we're ashamed or afraid of what people will say about us or or think about us. We hide our sins. We hide our faults. We hide our failures from the light. We hide from God because we know that with Him we can't pretend. We can't put up a facade. So we get as far as we can from God. And I think this is sometimes true of us even if we're we believe in Jesus and we love God and we want to follow God, what happens when we sin? How do we respond? How do you respond when you fail? Is your immediate response to run to God and say, Lord, I failed. Look at the mess I've made. What can I do? Can you fix this? Or is that my response to say, I can't even pray now. I can't even approach God because of my sin. I can't open the Bible. No, what I've done is too, I need to hide. I can't go and like, talk to my friends about what I've done. I can't confess it. I need to hide it. Adam's sin immediately creates distance and alienates him from his loving creator. God becomes someone to be afraid of. God becomes some kind of monster to him, someone to hide from. And it also creates distance between Adam and Eve. Maybe you saw that as I just read when given the chance to confess his sin, God comes like a father. Like maybe if you're a father, maybe you've done this with your children. You know what they've done, but you want to give them a chance to confess it. You want to give them a chance to come and just tell you. And so you say, son, what, what, tell me what happened here. And you're pray- I, I do this. I'm praying in my heart. I'm saying, Lord, please help this little boy to just tell me the truth. I want to hear the truth from him. I want him to confess it. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes what comes out instead are excuses, lies, blame shifting. It's interesting. In my family, it works like this. I'll ask my son. I have a son named Marcelo. I have a daughter named Noah. And I have another son named Marcos. I can pick any one of them. And I'll ask them, Marcelo, what happened here? What, what did you do? And often, the sentence will start. His response will often start with the name of one of his siblings. Like It's never like, well, Dad, I. It's always like, well, Dad, Noah. Or, Dad, you see Marcos, and I'm like, no, no, I'm asking about you, son. What did you do? Tell me. Um, well, Marcos and Noah, they were, you see, it always, it always ends up pointing somewhere else. That's exactly what Adam does here. God says, what have you done? And he says, this woman whom you gave me, she tempted me. So what's he doing? Not only is he shifting blame onto, not only is sin dividing him from his wife, but it's dividing him from God. I'm blaming her, but in doing so, I'm blaming you, Lord. You put me in these circumstances after all. And what kind of God are you to do this? I mean, if you really love me, wouldn't you have put me in a better, wouldn't you have set me up to succeed, not to fail? It becomes every man for himself. You see, we have an incredibly powerful inclination to explain away our sin and to defend ourselves, to blame our circumstances or to blame other people and ultimately to blame God. But I want us to notice something here and I know that all of this has been probably terribly discouraging. I want us to see that in the midst of all this, there's a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer of mercy. Look at verse 9. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? See, I want us to see that while Adam and Eve hide, they're thinking of stories, ways that they can defend themselves. God is seeking them. And guys, this is true for us. While we're, while we're alienating ourselves from God and saying, I can't even pray right now because of what I've done. Or I don't even want to go talk to my, 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 my Christian brothers and sisters. I don't want to confess to them what I've done. I need to hide. I need to hide. I need to blame shift. It's your fault. It's your fault. If you hadn't said that, I wouldn't have done what I did. As we're going through all that, God is saying, Adam, where are you? He's seeking. He's looking for us. You see, in this story, he wants to bring Adam to the realization, to this self-realization that, wait a second, I'm hiding for no reason. I'm hiding behind a bush from the God who created the universe, first of all, which makes no sense. But I'm hiding from a God who loves me. In verses 14 through 19, God explained, which I read earlier, God explains the curse that would result from the sin that Adam and Eve committed. It's judgment. These aren't just natural consequences from sin. They are that, but it's also judgment from God. I won't read it again, but he tells them that, Eve, for instance, you will explain pain. You will experience pain in childbirth. I have no right to really talk about that. I've never experienced it. Thank, I'm thankful for that. But I will say this. A lot of theologians believe that the pain of childbirth exists expressed here is about the physical labor, but it may even extend beyond that. How many of us, even if you've never had children, have experienced pain in your families, the pain of betrayal, the pain of tension, the pain of lies, the pain of unfulfilled expectations, all of that results from this curse. God says there's going to be conflict between husband and wife. There's going to be tension and conflict there as well. There will be family breakdown. There'll be divorce. God tells them that work is now going to be harder for you because of what you've done. Certainly work was there present before they sinned, but now it's just gotten harder. And this doesn't just apply to the kind of agricultural work that Adam was going to do, the digging and the farming applies to all of us. We've all experienced the curse at work, whether it's the long hours or the unappreciated achievements or it's the intra-office intra tension, the politics, the betrayal, the lies, all of that that we experience in the workplace resulting here from this. And then finally, God says the ultimate act of judgment. You've come from the dust. You're going to return to the dust. You will die. You were made to live, but now you're going to die. And then verse 23, he tells them, this is no longer your home. He exiles them. He throws them out of his place. So instead, what started beautifully as God's people in God's place under God's rule, now what does it look like? It's turned into God's people alienated from God, exiled from God's place because they rejected his rule. 
And Adam, folks, Adam is more than an example for us. All this explains where we are today in a fallen, broken world. We have been cursed. We have been exiled. We have been alienated from God. Something is deeply wrong with the world. And there's no, there's, there's no question about it. From downed airliners, shot down, invasions across borders in the Middle East, suffering regularly. Romans 5 says that death came into the world through Adam's sin. He is our representative and our sins, our personal sins, have just added to the tragedy. But, but, there's hope for exiles here. And that's our second point. Our second and third one will go through much more quickly. There's hope for exiles in the midst of all this judgment. You see, God would not allow his creation to be permanently ruined. He wouldn't allow this beautiful thing that he had made to just be vandalized and burnt down. God would not allow his enemy to triumph. There would be victory. Victory would finally come through. Look at verse 15, which I read earlier. God is speaking to the serpent here, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking to the serpent, and this is, it's easy to just kind of read over, but it's a key text understanding the whole of the Old Testament and really the whole of the Bible. It's this statement that God makes here that he's going to unfold throughout the rest of the scriptures and unpack throughout the course of history. The seed of the woman that God promises. One day the seed will come. This descendant of yours, Adam, this descendant of yours, Eve, he's going to come. He's going to come in your line, the line of Adam and Seth and Noah and Abraham and Judah and eventually David. There would come Jesus. And this Jesus, this seed of the woman, his body would be bruised. His body would be beaten to a pulp. His body would be hung on a cross. The serpent would, in fact, strike at his heel. And in the beating and in the crucifixion, the serpent himself, Satan, would think, I've won. Look at what I've done to the seed of Adam and Eve. But in the doing of all those things, evil's head would actually be crushed. Sin would be defeated through the seed of Adam. Sin would be defeated through the second Adam. The Bible calls Jesus the second, the better, the new Adam. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam came in as a living being, and he brought death into the world. The second Adam comes in and gives life to the world. The Messiah, this Savior, was promised at the dawn of history. So when we read the first part of Genesis 3, we see devil at work there, right? Lies, temptation. But in 1 John 3, 8, it tells us the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. In the middle of all this sadness and judgment, God comes and makes this promise that paradise, this paradise that had been lost, would one day be restored. In fact, it would be improved upon. 
You see, God knew that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, they didn't just need him to come to, to them and, and tell them, listen guys, I'll give you another chance. God knew that Adam and Eve didn't just need another chance to prove themselves. Another opportunity. God knew that he couldn't just come to Adam and Eve and say, or come to us and say, listen, get up and try harder. You failed, but, but I believe you can do better. Get up and try again. We're used to stories like that. We're used to thinking like that sometimes. When we, when we fall into the same kinds of sins that Adam and Eve did, we reject God's word, we, we, we reject his authority, we, we, we love things more than God. When we fail in those ways, we're likely to think, the answer here, the solution, is for me to give it another go. Try harder. Or, or we start to think, maybe I've used up all my chances. What if God doesn't want to give me any more chances? God knew that they didn't need a second chance. They needed a second Adam. We don't need a second chance. We need a second Adam. And that brings us to the very last point. God who saves. Woodside Community Church, God is not the God of second chances. He's the God of salvation. He doesn't just give us a redo. He initiates rescue again and again and again. Look at verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3. This is after Adam and Eve have sinned. And by the way, this is before Adam and Eve. We don't have any record here of Adam and Eve saying, owning their sin, asking for forgiveness. Still, nevertheless, God shows mercy to them. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. He made clothes for them. Remember, it's God who went looking for man in the first place. He says, Adam, where are you? And it's God who's still being kind to them. He's still being kind to them after all that they've done. He cares for them in these specific, warm ways. What does he do to care for them here? He provides skins. Where'd they come from? Look, this means that God went out. He took some animals, some innocent animals. He killed them. He bled them. He shed their blood. And he took their skins. And he used them to bring warmth and protection to these two people. And there's more to it than that. Because with this covering that God had made from these innocent animals, he reminds them of their nakedness. He reminds them of their shame apart from him. They needed to be covered, not just to protect against the elements, but because they were now shamed. But more importantly, with these skins, he's pointing to a fuller covering He's pointing to something so much better, to the righteous robes of Christ. Because Galatians 3.27 says that if we have believed in Christ, then we have been clothed in his righteousness. We've been clothed with him. We have put on Christ. You see, we're so often trapped. I'm so often trapped in the need to justify myself. And things only get worse as we continue to try to do that. Until we recognize, until we recognize that the solution is not to justify or to try harder or to blame shift. Listen to what John Stott says. 
He says, we insist, John Stott's a, uh, an old British preacher, he said, we insist on paying for what we've done. We can't stand the humiliation of acknowledging our bankruptcy and allowing somebody else to pay for us. He says, the notion that this somebody else should be God himself is just too much to take. We would rather perish than repent. We would rather lose ourselves than humble ourselves. But we cannot escape, listen, we cannot escape the embarrassment of standing stark naked before God. It is no use our trying to cover up like Adam and Eve in the garden. Our attempts at self-justification are as ineffective as their fig leaves. Instead, he says, we have to acknowledge our nakedness and see the divine substitute, Jesus. See him wearing our filthy rags instead of us and allow him to clothe us with his own righteousness. We can try to use every strategy at our disposal, every scheme we can imagine to not need God's grace, but our efforts are futile, futile, I should say, because the fact is, like I said before, we don't need a second chance. We need a God who saves. And, and, and the good news is, the way that I can encourage my heart and the way I can encourage yours is with the fact that we have a God who saves. And that's Jesus. When we're trying to defend ourselves and justify ourselves, God calls out our sin. He says, admit it. Confess it. You're naked before me anyway. And then he says, I will cover you. I will cover you. And in that promise that we don't have to cover ourselves and hide ourselves, but we can come to Christ and he'll cover us. Not just when we start the Christian life, but throughout our lives as following Jesus, we can keep coming back to him. There's joy in that. There's comfort in that. Isaiah saw it. Isaiah knew it. Listen to what he says. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Why? Why is Isaiah so joyful in the Lord? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. I don't need to cover myself. You don't need to cover yourself. In the midst of failures, in the midst of discouragement and disappointments, you don't need to cover yourself. We can come back again and again to Christ. He covers us. And once we rest in that, rest in that fully, then we're able to continue to seek to obey Him, believe His Word, worship Him, and not the things He gave us, obey Him in His authority, all those things. But as we fail, we need again and again to flee to this, rest in this, he has covered us. Look, he has died in our place. Many of us know, as we've heard the word, of, as if we believe the gospel, we know that the gospel is a story of substitution. If you've come to Christ in faith, or if you haven't, know this, the only way that we come to God is through Jesus. Because we can't earn his favor. We can't make up for the awful things we've done any more than Adam and Eve could make up for them. But he has made up for them in Jesus. And so when we believe in Jesus, we find covering, we find acceptance with God. We believe that he has died in our place so that we can have the relationship with God that he has. It's a story of substitution. We know that. Many of us know that. We know that that's how life as a Christian begins. But a lot of us get so confused when we think about how to live as Christians every day. 
We think that somehow that idea of a substitute was how we got started, but it's now if I'm really going to walk as a Christian, I need to pick myself up, try harder, work harder, justify myself, make up for the bad things I've done. And God says, no, you've gotten it all wrong. The way you've started is the way you continue. You started out this life by coming to Christ and being covered by his righteousness. You continue this life by continuing to come back to Jesus to be covered by his righteousness, believing that you have, in fact, been covered. John Stott says the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Isn't that what we saw in the garden? Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? They said, we're going to be God. We're going to call the shots. We decide what's right and wrong. That's what sin always is. But Stott says the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. God substituting himself for man. That's what he did in Jesus. When Jesus died, when Jesus rose again. Brothers, sisters, friends, we, we intuitively believe that when we've sinned, we need to hide or defend our actions. But God calls us to come to him naked. To see in Jesus Christ the one who has lived as we should have lived and has died for us. Doing everything necessary to bring us back into full communion with our Creator. So I want to encourage you, as I encourage myself, to rest in that. To find some real rest in it. To be sustained by that in the face of all the discouragement and all the failure and all the challenges you face. I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for taking our place. We thank you for clothing us in your righteousness. And we pray that you'd forgive us for forgetting that. Forgive us for acting as if you haven't already paid for our sins. We pray that you'd help us to rest in the acceptance we have with the Father because of what you've done for us. Lord God, we confess our sins to you. We own them. And we ask that you bring transformation, greater obedience, not just as we work harder, but Lord, as we trust more deeply in what you've done. Make us more like the one who substituted his life for ours, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.